with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. May 31st. That means it is the end of another month, and June starts tomorrow. Tick-tock, tick-tock, time, it ticks for us all. It's also Wednesday, so it's interview day. I have a great interview for you guys today. Kelsey Wiggins who was the, uh, the, uh, the person running a program called Seed to Table at a local school. She's finishing up this year, and she's kind of going into the private sector. We'll be talking about that. But we'll talk about what Seed to Table is, what a Seed to Table garb- uh, garden manager does, uh, the impact that it has on kids in schools. If you want a program like this at your local school, the approach to take to get it, and a ton more. This is, again, a fantastic interview, a uh, very conversational person, really awesome gal. And we'll have her on for you in just a moment. We'll drop into the uh, live feed of the, uh, the audio of the live feed that we did with Kelsey today. Before we do that, though, i got some announcements for you. Starting off, as always, with our sponsor. Sponsor today, number one today, is JM Bullion. You guys, you know me. I'm a big Bitcoin advocate, but I've never stopped recommending some level of precious metal in your portfolio. I generally stick to recommendations somewhere around 5% of your net wealth is uh, precious metal as a wealth preservation assurance program but if you're going to get uh, precious metal the, the whole point of gold and silver is it's the same as long as you're buying from something and ripping you off and saying something fake it's the same a silver eagle is a silver eagle a gold buffalo is a gold buffalo you got it it's all the same it's the whole point so you shouldn't pay more or do business with a company where you're not sure what you're going to get and you shouldn't pay for shipping if you don't have to. And you, know, you probably, if you can do all that and get a discount if you're a member of my MSB. And on top of that, you can get uh, your silver and gold from a company that supports the podcast you listen to. Well, that just seems to make sense. That's what you'll get from JM Bullion. Stack silver and gold, great prices, free shipping. And if there ever is a hiccup, I can get right in touch uh, with the people in charge there, including the president of Necessary, and fix it for you. And I say that all the time, but you know what? I almost never have to do it. I think I've helped one person with a problem with an order last year. One in a whole year. That says a lot. We do a lot of business with them, and they have been a loyal sponsor, been with us. God, I think it's about 10, maybe 12 years that Jam Bullion has sponsored the show. Next up today, Live Free Academy and John Bush. They have a new program out called the, uh, the Exit and Build Accelerator. Have you been wondering, how do I actually do this? How do I actually get out of the city, move out to the country, maybe way out, maybe a little bit out, whatever it is? How do I get myself into a position where I can change my life into what I want it to be but rather than living for someday. That's why John and his folks put together the Exit and Build Accelerator program. There's some really top-notch folks involved with it. How about Joel Salatin, Jeff Lawton, Curtis Stone? Uh, That's just a piece of this. This is designed to help you figure out, one, how to leverage side hustles against your J-O-B if you still have a full-time job and, and earn enough money to get out, and then how to build that plan, and then how to execute that plan, and then how to make that property productive and more. It's an amazing program. It is only available until Friday, June 2nd to sign up because it is an active program, so they kind of want everybody to start in it at one time. You can learn more about 
about it today at thesurvivalpodcast.com. There's, of course, a link in the show notes for today's episode to go out in the Daily Mail and everything like that as well. With that, let's go ahead and drop on into the live feed that we did earlier uh, with Kelsey. And we are live. Welcome, folks, to today's episode of the Survival Podcast. That is episode 3,311. I have a special guest with us today. She's an awesome gal doing awesome things. Her name is Kelsey. Welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Or a different, I don't know what that was. We'll ignore it. Uh, we'll have, it's maybe a different angle than we've come at subjects like this before. We're going to be talking about uh, a program that you are part of called Seed to Table and how that's evolving going forward. And that's that's kind of really a new thing. But for people who don't know who or what a Kelsey Wiggins is, kind of give us your background. Like, before you were doing what you're doing now, like, how did you end up here? Like, what's that path look like? You're, you're bored, spaced out in study hall back in high school. And then <laughs> now you're doing this. Like, how, does those, how do those two things get connected? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, well, a little background on me. So I grew up in Tama County, Iowa, so kind of central Iowa. Um, grew up on a family farm. We had cattle, corn, and soybeans and um, grew up in 4-H for, you know, I was one of those um, people that grew up in 4-H and I had the 10-year sticker on my report, um, you know, by the time I was all said and done. And we had a little vegetable garden that I helped my mom with quite a bit and um, went to college. I went to Iowa State University and studied dietetics. Um, and I was in the College of Ag, Ag Science versus Human Sciences portion because I always felt like, you know, there's so much to where your food comes from and um, people just don't understand that. And that became really clear to me as a freshman in college. You know, I had a lot of people from the Chicagoland area on my floor freshman year and they just didn't understand, like, how do you milk a cow? Um, you know, like what what do you mean you butcher a calf to get it to your grocery store? And you yeah. know, what does that mean? What's a combine? And just, you know, staying up really late talking to kids about like, what is it like living on a farm? And that really opened my eyes to the world that people don't know what I know growing up on a farm. And I wouldn't say that I know a whole lot, um, but I know a lot more <laughs> than most people do. And it's just crazy to think that most people don't know how food gets from, from a farm to your, um, to your grocery store and ultimately to your table. So, um, but anyways, um, finished up at Iowa State University, got my bachelor's degree in dietetics. Then I moved on to do my master's and we have to do a dietetic internship. So that's three rotations. You do food service, clinical, and a community rotation. And so I worked with the Illinois Department of Human Services for one part. And then I worked at St. John's Hospital in Springfield for the other two. And that's kind of where I found that I really thought I was going to like clinical and doing that. But, uh, you know, telling people that their loved one is going to die and, uh, you know, end of life care and tube feeds and TPNs like that wasn't my jam. And really educating people about where the food comes from, how to prepare it, um, you know, hands-on cooking classes and things like that. That was that was really where I was successful at. My um, while I was in finishing up my internship program, my father-in-law found this little ad in the newspaper, you know, that said, "Oh, seat to table manager at this little tiny elementary school," and it was close to where my husband's family grew up and. Um, where they're living still. And so he said, I think you'd be really good at that. And so here we are today, um, you know, interviewed over Skype when that was a thing. And oh, wow. uh, then we were, I was hired on the spot and then just started right away after my internship was over. So been doing this for almost seven years now and 
um, you know, just starting the program and running with it based on the kids and what they want to learn about. So it's been a really fun run. So this is clearly something that the the entity, the school came up with and then sought someone to fill that in. Where did that idea have its genesis? Sure, sure. So um, the the superintendent at the time, his name was Jeff Herzberg, and he was really passionate about getting kids to learn hands on. Um, we had a maker space. We had, you know, a 3D printer. We had robotics and things going on. And one of the big gaps, he felt like he's, you know, he was really passionate about food trucks and making sure that people were buying local and, and doing those sorts of things. And he he was like, we live in the most fertile part of the United States of America and we just aren't using it. And so um, they went to a school called the Muse School, M-U-S-E, out of California, and they visited there and they had a seat to table program. And so then a bunch of the teachers and the school board and uh, the superintendent all thought, you know, we need to get somebody in here to, to teach these things and let these kids explore with their hands and do hands-on learning. And so that's really where it stemmed from. And um, yeah, so it was really a whole team effort and getting, getting a new person in here to do, because they tried, they tried to have the teachers oversee the garden and it, that just was not feasible to do that. And then man a class and um, you know, all the, the weeding and taking care of plants just wasn't feasible for them. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you give a little bit about the concept of seed to table? I mean, it's probably not a term or a phrase that many people have heard. There all There's all these restaurants now that are farm to table. I, I think it's pretty sure. self-explanatory, but you want to kind of expand on the concept itself? Yeah, yeah. So seed to table, just the concept of that you plant seeds. Um, you grow it out, you harvest it, you then eventually bring it to your tabletop. And then um, where my, I feel like I fit in really well to this equation is, you know, being able to prepare that food and, you know, the amount of cooking classes that we had to take um, for to be a dietitian was pretty insane, but also a lot of fun and, you know, just exploring the whole food science realm of things too. So um, yeah, but just the, the fact of you plant a seed, you grow it, you harvest it, bring it to your table. That's really the whole, whole shebang there. As local as it gets, because farm to table means different things to different people. There's no real enforcement of the term. And farm to table means the food was on a farm. Now it's on the table. And it could yeah. be from a farm two blocks down the, the an urban farm two blocks down the road. Or it could be from California. And you could be right. in Montana. And that's not mm -hmm. very local. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it kind of leaves an ambiguity. But seed to table is pretty clear. You started with a seed. You ended up with food. It's as local as it gets, right? Yep. Yep. So we have a school greenhouse and we have a garden and an orchard that we've all planted since I've been here and built and done done all that. So we have about two thirds of an acre of a garden, a third of an acre in an orchard. We have an 18 by 36 greenhouse. Um, and then we also have added bees into the mix there, too. So we have a honey house. Um, and then we also added mm, just over three quarters of an acre for a pumpkin patch. And we planted our garlic out there this year. Um, we're kind of cutting back on the pumpkin and squash realm a little bit, but um, yeah, just we, you know, have a really long winter here and that's when the kids are in school. And so taking the kids out to the greenhouse and getting the plants started in the greenhouse and letting them see that full term, not only just what you pick up from the store as a plant or whatever, but allowing the kids to see that, yes, you can grow that plant too, and you can grow that. And um, then what do you do with it once, once it's ready to harvest? Awesome. Awesome stuff. So what was, you know, what is your day-to-day -day task like? What was the job entail uh, of doing this uh, in, in a school? 
Yeah, good question. So, um, you know, uh, built into the seed to table program, we're allowed to have me teach if you want to use that term loosely, but I, I have my master's degree. And so I, I teach for a better, you know, lack of a better word, but um, half hour of a gardening class for each grade K through six at our school. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So just like they have PE and music and art, they also have a gardening specials class. And so they come to me and we ended up turning an old locker room that wasn't used anymore and turn it into a kitchen space. We call it the learning kitchen. Um, and so we have stoves and countertops and um, they come in here and we can cook stuff. We can go out to the greenhouse. We can go to the garden, um, you know, bus over to the the pumpkin patch if we need to, whatever it might be. So, um, you know, it's a lot of taking care of plants, but also during the school year. So your August through May kind of time frame, having those classes in there, um, planning for events. Um, I try to do a lot of events that are fundraiser based to try and support what we're doing here. And um, I write a lot of grants in the wintertime, just a lot of downtime where, um, you know, there's only so much watering in the greenhouse that you can do and dividing up plants and stuff. And so just a lot of grant writing and um, figuring out what to do for the summer. Cool. So once this program was implemented and you, you're, you know, kind of the force behind it, what was the impact like on students themselves, maybe their parents, the community at large? This is the kind of thing that I think should be in every school. In fact, we just had Cassie here in the chat say it should be taught in every school. I agree. We'll mm. kind of get to that more toward the end, too. But like what was what was the impact that it had on people that were touched by it? Yeah, um, definitely a big pack impact on the community and on the, the students. I feel like um, for a little while there when it was a brand new um, booming program, when we first started, I feel like we increased our enrollment, you know, 40 percent every year um, for the first five years when I was here. And um, I would say it's it's dropped off a little bit um, since like the newness has kind of worn off. But mm-hmm. um, overall, you know, I get kids up on stage to present on different topics. We, um, you know, have a. We call it an ag innovation showcase. So kids get to think outside of the box and um, create a solution to a problem within agriculture. So I get them up on stage to do that. Um, You know, we have a little chef's club, a gardening club, um, but really just getting kids interested in in what they're doing, where they're at, and not necessarily just learning off of a tablet or a computer or off of a textbook. I feel like textbooks aren't a thing anymore, (laughs) but worksheets and what have you, you know, kids get to actually go out and explore with their hands and create and dig in. Yes, pun intended, I suppose, but, (laughs) you know, really, really just get in there. And, you know, we've done things that, you know, really based off of their interests. So um, that's what a lot of the exploring I do is when the, the kids come in for the fall semester is we we explore what they're actually interested in. So whether that's hunting geese or deer or whatever, we've butchered deer, we've banded geese um, for part of our classes, Um, you know, just really diving in on what kids really want to, what what they want to learn about. And so I feel like that's been really, really key, but, you know, just also supporting a small community is really important too. We've grown stuff that we've put into the restaurants and we actually started selling to our local grocery store this last year. Um, So jumping through the hoops of that, Um, you know, there's just like a lot of things that you can do and it just takes a creative mind and being able to work hard to get those things done too. So showing kids all of those things are, are really important too. So it it seems like a really important thing that we should be doing. And, um, 
there's there seems to be like a lack of reverence for food at this point. Um, I grew up confined in a Catholic school where we had to you know say grace for every single thing we ate, even if the teacher gave us all one little piece of candy or whatever. Uh, I wasn't really into it at the time, but I do see a value and a reverence for food. And I, I think to a large degree, the reason we've lost that reverence for food is because we don't participate in its production anymore. When you go out in a garden, you sweat because you're working or you, you know, you take the life of an animal or post somebody else is taking its life and you take that animal apart into pieces. It's real. It's raw. This yep. thing gave its life so I can have food. Right. And I think that our entire society is disconnected with it, but each generation has been further disconnected as we've drifted further. Like, you know, avocado toast comes from Starbucks, not a tree, right? Like, <laughs> right, like right. You, you have to explain, like, this, an avocado mm-hmm. is a fruit. It grows on a tree. It has a seed, and you take the seed, you plant it, it grows another tree. Yep. But yep. why can't I grow yep. here? Because you're in Minnesota, and it's cold. Right. Like they have to grow this down, right. you know, in, in, a, in a zone nine or above. Well, what's that? And then like mm-hmm. all of a sudden this concept that like the thing I can't grow for myself, somebody else, somewhere else did the same type of work I did. And then it had like some guy drove a truck and then some person worked in a warehouse so that I could have this thing that's from Mexico. Like right. if you actually think about what brings food to our plates. Even the food you and I would say, man, you probably shouldn't eat that. Let's go a little bit more nutrition. It's still an absolute miracle that that food is produced. And then how many hands had to be involved to make sure that, you know, everybody at your dinner table ate all week long. And the minute we disconnect from that, doing some piece of it ourselves, we lose that. I think think there's value in buying a primal cut and cutting steaks out of it to just understand, like, it doesn't just show up this way. Right. Right. Definitely. And being able to have the kids be part of that, it's, um, you know, eye opening. And I I honestly think life changing for the kids. And, you know, there's a lot of times that the parents will text me. I had no idea about this or that thing. My son or daughter came home and they told me this. And it's like, you know, so there's things that the kids are teaching their parents and vice versa. You know, I have some adult learning classes, too, that parents get involved. But, you know, everybody's busy. But Ultimately, everybody has to eat every day. And so if we can get down to the, the root of what everybody's doing, I think we'd be all a little bit better off um, and it's full of just fun. be a little bit healthier. Dig in, <laughs> get down to the root. We're going to have a whole T-shirt line made by the time this interview is done. That'd be uh, awesome. Uh, seriously, though, like we've had quite a few comments already, but people like this belongs in every school or whatever. What, what can parents do to get programs like this going at their schools? Yeah. Um, well, I think the biggest step is get get a group of people together that also think the same way as you do and really get on the same page and then go to your school board and say, you know, 25 of us, whatever, really think that this would be what we need to do for our students. And um, this is how we might see it working or, you know, asking your school board members or president, um, not just administration in the school, because ultimately in a public school setting, the administration doesn't have the final say in everything. So really going to your school board and saying, I think I have this great idea for the kids. It could support math, literacy, science, technology, all the things wrapped into the gardening program. Um, and we just how could we find a way to make that work in our school, in our schedule, in our budget? Um, those would be the first steps is getting grouped together, you know, going and talking to your school board members um, and then. You know, you might have to do some things with the city if you're in city limits, um, especially with livestock. That's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but those would be your first steps with 
talk to your school board if you're in a public school setting. Um, what were the challenges associated with, with the, the job itself? I know that anytime we add a little bit of government to a thing, that some things that should be really easy aren't. Uh, there's also constraints. You're also dealing with children. I mean, kids don't always want to do things that you want them to do. As a homeschooler, I'm very well aware of that. And my wife more yeah. so. But what were kind of some of the day-to-day challenges with this program as, as, as its leader? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say ultimately the biggest challenge is the funding for the program. Um, the school has graciously paid me as a full-time employee um, up until this year. And so, um you know, that is the biggest hurdle is getting to pay someone fairly for, you know, um, for all the hours they put in and and the materials I try to cover with different fundraisers. So you have to be a bit creative in this position to be able to think of how are you going to fundraise to do that? What's a way that you can get community involved in that? That's a bit, you know, and going back to the food thing, I feel like everybody eats, everybody loves a good home cooked dinner that they can come and join a community with. And so those have been some of our best fundraisers, honestly, are some of those like farm to table dinners or we call them seat to table dinners. Um, we have, you know, a big harvest festival um, where we grow all the stuff for the meal. People free will donation, put money back into it. And that keeps quite a few of the projects going that we like to do. But, yeah, ultimately, the the biggest, most challenging thing is the the money hurdle for a lot of public schools. So. That's right. Why you don't see it very often um, is because it's not a requirement by the State Department of Education. So anything not required is hard to get done. And it's probably we'll talk about this. It's also the first thing to get budget cuts, too. Um, Yeah, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about the events? Um, I I think that the more you can do to self-fund a program, the, the, the more you can get bureaucrats on board with it. Mhm mhm yeah um well i mean we started a farmers market program that's been really successful in our community um to be able to sell our extras cuz a lot of it goes into the the school breakfast and lunch program but the extras that we have which is typically a lot you know you plate you plant eight zucchini plants and you have 587 zucchini so <laughs> you got to have a <laughs> way to get rid of it laugh, right <laughs> at least in your yeah. climate <laughs> Down here, you get 587,000 vine borers, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, we had to have a way to get rid of the extras. And so the farmer's market's been really um, successful that way. We actually dabbled into the cut flower business a little bit last year, and that was really successful, along with the squashes and, and pumpkins. Everybody, I feel like, gets a little bit like white girl happy um, come fall time, the sweaters come on, the pumpkins come out. So those have been really successful. Um, You know, um, Mother's Day plants, um, special planters for like succulents grow really well here. So those have been pretty successful for us to grow here and sell um, little plant sales. Um, But yeah, I feel like the meals and things, those are really some of the best. best Have y'all done anything with with plants? Because Mm-hmm. To me, that's like the layup on revenue. Like I can raise this yeah. tomato plant until it's mature, prune off all the blight, keep the airflow going, hard prune it, get all these right. tomatoes. And then I want to sell a person a pound of tomatoes and they want to haggle over a dollar. But right. I can sell right. them a plant this big for three bucks. Yes. Yep. And we we've seen that, too. So we typically have like an end of the year plant sale. Um, and so, yeah, we do like four packs of tomatoes, peppers that the kids all plant. I mean, free labor Um, for all the kids. They do it part of their gardening class. And, um, you know, we start 
gosh, all different kinds of plants. But, you know, the kids look through the seed catalog and they'll pick out, I want to grow this this year, this this year. And I kind of have like the community favorites picked out that I'm like, okay, well, we have to plant these and we have to plant so many, um, you know, and our greenhouse only has so much space too. So we kind of play, play that a little bit too, but I mean, yes, but around here, we, we're in a really low income neighborhood, but people mm. really like to grow their own food. So instead of $3 for a four pack, we get a dollar, but you know, dollar. we sell enough of those that it still pays for itself and it's still a plenty good fundraiser and a really good experience for the kids too, to, to do that. But yeah, we have, we really like to do plant sales and um, yeah, they're the grow getters group. We call them the, the gardening club does lots of different things to raise money right now. They're working on a bunch of different house plants. So that's kind of, you know, trying to get people interested on a, in their home basis and then herb gardens and that sort of thing too. So they've been real excited about that. Yeah. And that's a thing too. It, it's always mystified me, but I've always told, told people that want to start making some money from plant propagation, do ornamentals. I know it sounds ridiculous to us because we're also focused on food. It's so important. It seems like you're going to put time and energy into a plant that it maybe it should give you something back or at least half your plants should, you know, but if you mm-hmm. go stand at a box store, on a Saturday, on a nice day, and just watch the garden center and watch people check out. For every fruit tree, nut tree, and vegetable plant that leaves, four or five flats of begonias and right. uh, marigolds and whatever else will leave. And, you know, you yeah. can fight trends or you can harness trends. And, and yeah. I, I definitely get the idea of houseplants, ornamentals, et cetera, being in some ways a buddy, better moneymaker. And it's it's interesting you say that, though, because we're in a low-income area, but people will buy a houseplant before they'll buy a food-producing plant. It's kind of crazy. They, they will. Um, I feel like a lot of people, you know, just think like, oh, I don't have a backyard. I can't plant stuff. So we've had a lot of container gardening workshops where oh, cool. you can grow a tomato plant in a five-gallon bucket. You can grow in a mineral tub, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, people feel like, well, I live in an apartment, so I can't do a whole lot. You know how many crazy yahoos in New York City have oh. three foot of balcony space that grow just yeah. a ridiculous amount of food on their balconies? And so it's just trying to get people um, to think creatively, too. You know, people are set in their ways and that's fine. Um, but, you know, just trying to keep pushing the boundaries there of what they think they can do versus what you can actually do. So, yeah. Yeah, you just reminded me of something all the way back at the beginning of the show. Somebody sent me some stuff with Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton, and that's sort of really kindled. I was always a gardener and what have you, but that really pushed me into permaculture. And I can't remember which video it is, but it's a video with Bill in it, and it's not the Global Gardener series. He's out on this little patio like you just described, and he throws together this garden in about five minutes, and it even had like a little fish tank and frogs in it, and he was growing – uh, sweet potato vine up a, a trellis and all. I need to find that yep. for people and kind of re- re- resuscitate that. I, it might have been in grave danger of failing food. It might have been on that. I don't know, but it's mm-hmm. it's exactly what you're talking about. Right. But here we have this like three foot by eight foot terrace. It's not even got mm-hmm. that much solar exposure. And all of a sudden he's stacking food everywhere in it. Right. And that is right. something that people need to realize that they can do. And container gardening, I agree with you, is one of the greatest things uh, for busy urban people, because not only can we grow in the container, we can turn the container into a wicking bed, and that means we have to water once or twice a week instead <laughs> right. of twice a day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can go with that, and you, just because you don't have the space to do an acre or whatever of 
peppers, tomatoes, the whole shebang. What can you do to bring one thing to your to your plate every single day? And that's what sure. we try and instill in the kids is like maybe it's an herb that you put you grow chives once and then you yeah. have it as a perennial every year and then you can throw that on your eggs every day. You know, like what can you do to add some green to your life? Not just being stuck with cardboard boxes of garbage that, you know, you go yeah. down the middle of the grocery store. Like what can you actually grow to benefit you as a person and, and benefit your health? So, well, that's, yeah. that's like the, the key component to this with the program you've been running with this two table. So you mentioned something like chives, or if you look at something like basil, people grow basil. Okay, I got some basil. That's nice to throw a leaf on top of my food. You teach them how to take a, a blender or a food processor and make pesto out of it, brown some chicken and toss the chicken and pesto. All of a sudden, well, that's a weekly meal now. You know, right. my wife puts freaking pesto on steak. I, <laughs> I no, I don't like that, but, you know, she can do what she wants. Um, yeah. We do cauliflower rice, keep carb count low. And we'll do sure. pesto on cauliflower rice. And that is like, if you, so good. if you can't cook all the stink out of cauliflower enough for you, put mm -hmm. pesto on it and you'll be good. I, I, I don't really care for the smell of cauliflower. That's like cook the crap out of it in ghee and, and cook <laughs> that stink and that moisture out of it. But then let's throw a couple of tablespoons of pesto on it and, and toss that. And I think that like, that's the kind of thing. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the kids here and the impact on them, because what I've noticed like with my grandkids is they don't get excited about eating anything else. that's junk food unless they grew it. Yeah. When they actually grew it, they're like, oh, wait, I can eat that. Like, so, yep. I mean, what has been kind of the impact that you've noticed on the kids themselves? Yeah, for sure. So we when I first started, we kind of started up. There was an old salad bar that was stuffed behind the stage and I pulled that out. It wasn't working. You know, we just threw ice on it. But we started growing our own greens in the greenhouse. And people at first were like, I'm not so sure about that. But then we started to see that we had to plant consistently 40 percent more for every week uh, because we were running out all the time. And that was for probably a period of two years until I, I feel like I had my first child and then I wasn't at school so much yeah. uh, right after that happened. But, um, you know, we were consistently increasing the amount of plants that we were growing because we couldn't keep up with it after, you know, you get one kid that starts in on it and then, um, you know, then the next one, then the next one starts figuring out that, oh, this is okay to try. And we, we live by the phrase of don't yuck someone else's yum. And so just because you don't like it doesn't mean someone next to you won't like it. And so just trying to get people to be kind to each other and, you know, try new things. And if you don't like it, oh, well, go try something else. Shut up. Don't don't say anything. <laughs> get your ruined experience for everybody else. So, um, yeah, we, we go by that. But, you know, and sometimes I do secret things like I cooked up you know, beef tongue taco. And I called it tacos de lingua. And, you know, the kids were like <laughs> over the top, like, this is the greatest thing I've ever had. And, um, you know, then I said what it was and the kids are like, I don't care. I'm going to eat it anyway. So, <laughs> you know, just getting kids to try it, um, has been a big step. It's really increased our fruit and vegetable consumption here at school. We've seen that happen. Um, you know, more and more kids are getting dirty in the garden. They're okay with that. They ask constantly to go out to the greenhouse and they're kind of bummed, honestly, when I'm like, no, we're staying in today. It's blizzarding outside. I'm not walking across the parking lot to get to the greenhouse with all of you. Um, but, you know, kids really like that. And we've seen them trying more and more stuff and being okay with things that are not the 
bland tan color, you know, adding different colors on their plate, you know, purple carrots, yellow carrots, things that are kind of out of the ordinary. They're okay with trying out. Whereas when I first came in, that was like, no way. We are not going to do that. <laughs> That's disgusting. But yeah, they've come a really long way. And, you know, um, actually the first class that I had as kindergartners when I first came in, just finished their sixth grade year in our building. And, you know, a lot of those kids are like, I wouldn't have tried half the stuff without you pushing us to do that. And so that's been really impactful and really, really neat to see that they've kind of changed their taste buds based on, on, um, you know, what we've done here. So, you know, and you, you kind of plowed right through a point that I think is really important about basically not grossing out or icking out on somebody else's yum. I think it's how you phrase it. And, yeah. and I, you know, I can't tell you as a grandfather how important that is because my grandkids will try anything and they go home and tell their mom that they tried it and they liked it. And she's very picky eater and she might, and they might come back and then not want to eat it again right away because mom said it was grosser. Like don't do that. Like if you have any inhibitions about your diet, keep them to yourself. Right. right? Unless you right. think it's like dangerous for them to eat it or something like that. Like, you know, if a kid wants to try something, be all in on it. Um, don't hand down your, your, your culinary bias, right? right. Try, like, try to expand the culinary horizon of your kids because they're the ones going to make all the decisions in the future. And mm -hmm. there's so many of us, and we don't even realize maybe that the reason we're that way is somebody did it to us. Like, right. and I, I think that happens, and people don't even think about it. They just, oh, ill or oh, that's gross. You don't even know what it is, and then you're, right. you're transferring this bias to another person. And I think part of understanding that with kids is realize. They're, they're tiny humans, right? They're, 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 right? they're tiny humans. Like, I, you know, babies are super tiny humans, and we should always treat them, you know, to some degree as our equal because they are. We also have authority over them, so they don't, like, got, you know, kill themselves or something. You know, right. like, because kids are, you know, especially when they hit about four, they try to kill themselves on everything in the house. But yep. overall, they're still tiny humans, and we need to be mindful of our words with them because they're also at the state where their mind is most susceptible to programming, and whether we understand that or not, as parents, grandparents, family, we are the most influential voices in their head. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. And we see that over and over again that, you know, the more that you're positive about this, mm, this is so good. How about you try that? Did you try this? And getting kids to talk positively about their food has been, um, you know, one of the best things. And the, the yeah, like I said, the phrase don't yuck someone else's yum is just like and we all wait to eat together. We say bon appetit. Let's yeah. eat. So that way we all try it together. So it's not like half the class you know, tried it already and they already made up their mind and the yeah. other half of the class doesn't have it. So, you know, just structuring that in a way that then you get a poultry you know. phenomenon mimicry. <laughs> if the first couple of kids didn't like it, nobody likes it. Right. 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 If exactly. The first couple of kids yeah. did like it. Then everybody's pretending they liked it. You know, right. Right. Like right. Monkey see yeah. monkey do applies to humans yeah. more than monkeys, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the, there was a point and I lost it. Hopefully it'll come back and I'll move on with my outline here. Um, you're making a career change. Can you, you know, I know you still are employed, so, you know, you might limit some of what you'll say, but what, what can you say about why you've decided to do that and what that looks like? Sure. Sure. So, um, you know, the budget is tough in a public school system. And since it's not a requirement to have a gardening class in the school, um, we've kind of teachers have banded together. They've said what they want to say to the school board, as far as like what, an impact that this has made on the community and with their kids. Um, and there just isn't much wiggle room in the budget to do more than a half time employee right now. So um, 
our family is deciding to kind of move forward with doing all the things that I'm doing at the school because we see that it's a benefit to the kids and, um, and, and the community members and really stepping away from the public school world and doing that as a homesteading school kind of, I don't know, along the lines of like Nicole Sauce and you guys that have different classes and different programs that you invite people to your farm and do things. So that's what we're going to be trying to do. Um, I started a blog over winter break. Um, I told the kids as a challenge, part of their um, Ag Innovation Showcase project was you need to come up with a way to better yourself, whether that's figuring out how to use Instagram or YouTube or just labeling stuff from an engine, whatever it might be. Um, but if you do that, I'll do that too. And so my my test to them was that I was like, well, I'm going to start a blog over Christmas break. So that's what I ended up doing. And so I started the Iowa Family Gardening Homestead. Not a lot on there yet, um, but with summer well and underway, you know, there's a lot of content that I'm working on and I'll be transferring a lot of um, videos that I've done on the school Facebook page and transferring that to YouTube, just how to's of beekeeping, of plant propagation, of just all sorts of different topics that we've done. I've even done a butchering class where I had someone record it um, while we did that. So we'll see if I can get that up on YouTube or not, or if I'll get flagged and taken down. But I feel like there's, you know, a lot of stuff that I've done throughout the years that um, the kids have enjoyed and um, just bringing that not only just to this community, but our county and the surrounding counties and just trying to make more of an impact rather than just in our, our small community here. So that's kind of our goals moving forward and um, doing that and expanding the blog and hopefully someday creating an event center where we are able to house all of these things in one place with a greenhouse and a storefront with Iowa based goods um, and having classes and that sort of thing. So, yeah. So you kind of want to build that as like a local business onto itself now that mm -hmm. would probably work with kids and adults both and continue yeah. this education in the private sector, I guess would be the way to put it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense the way you said that. Yeah. Um, not just, just this little community, um, but yeah, just reaching out further to, cause there are a lot of adults that say, Oh, I wish I had the opportunity to learn how to do this or that, or I wish I had the opportunity to learn how to cook from scratch. And, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of need out there and a lot of need in our, our part of the state. There's not a lot of like local food programming and things going on in our kind of corner of the state. And so I feel like there's a big push to, um, educate people. And that's always what I feel like I've been gifted with is being able to educate people well. And yeah, I feel like maybe it's just time to, to move on and uh, expand what we're doing to other people and, and touch other people's lives that way. I mean, there are some real advantages to it. I mean, you have pretty much total freedom within like common sense business practices and things like that, but you, you have a lot more freedom. The other side is you're going to have to have enough revenue to fund it. Um, sure. yep. but if there's a demand for a thing, generally a revenue solution can be found and that the value of total freedom and being able to adapt the program to the group. Cause I can see this going somewhere like maybe you have something that's really geared toward kids, but maybe you have something that's geared more toward young adults, or maybe mm -hmm. you have something that's geared toward adults and their kids where they can come do something together and learn about this. And I think there's a, real opportunity in this whole line of thinking because there's so many people, you know, they, they think about farming or whatever and they want to get huge pieces of land and all. Well, huge pieces of land are generally dedicated either to, you know, grazing ruminants or something like that. 
but more often they're dedicated to like commodity crops. And the only way to make money with commodity crops is to grow an absolute total crud ton of them and then <laughs> yep. sell them to the commodity market. Like that's corn, beans, potatoes, rice, all that stuff, right? But right. what people are actually lacking access to is fresh, fresh produce, fresh vegetables, um, and, and things that you can do with like small scale livestock or understanding things about, like you mentioned uh, venison a couple times. There's, you know, you mentioned Nicole sauce. Nicole has a freezer full of deer meat every year. Right. She never kills a deer. Not because she's opposed to it, because she doesn't have to. <laughs> people bring her the deer. Yep. She butchers the deer. They get half the meat. She gets half the meat. Five or yep. six people do that. You have a full freezer. Right. right? Exactly. So like there's opportunities for this where we don't need 40 acres or 15 or five. You know, I got three and I use about three quarters of an acre intensively managed, if that. Yep. And the ducks do whatever on the rest of it because I, I'm old. I don't work that hard <laughs> anymore, right? Right. But, you right. know, you can't plow here, so there's no field to cropping or anything like that. So yep. um, I think there's a huge opportunity in making people aware that because you mentioned people with a balcony. At least I'll give them, even though I know they can do something, I'll give them some level of a pass. People that tell me they don't have any land, and then you talk to them and you're like, well, I have a little suburban lot, and it's like, you know, a tenth of an acre or a quarter of an acre. I'm like, oh, my God. The right. amount you could do with that is <laughs> yeah. the, the stuff you would grow, it's more than you can use. You're not going to necessarily produce enough to, like, sell to restaurants or something like that. But you will be giving food away because right. – what will happen is maybe you can't grow all your food, but like what grows well for you, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, you will have such an abundance of that. You'll get tired of preserving it. And I mean, that's how I grew up. I used to be sent right. off with grocery bags, old school paper ones full of produce toward the end of the season. Cause my grandmother's like, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm done. I've right. canned, I've made chow, chow. We froze like go give this. And she just write family names on it. I'd be carrying <laughs> that around. And we had about a quarter acre garden. So we had a yep. big garden, but that definitely taught me how much relatively small piece of land can produce. And I, right. I think that if people started to tune into this, there's my pun, tune into this on the survival podcast. But, um, <laughs> but if they did, they started to become more attuned to this. They'd realize how big of a difference it can make in their lives because yep. everybody's just Bitching is the term for it, about expensive prices on things right now. Yeah. You want to know what's expensive? Go look at greens, like organic lettuce, spinach, arugula mix in a grocery store. Buy the pound and compare it to ground beef. And then you start to realize, like, there's a significant amount of money that goes into this. And so either people spend a lot of money on it or they don't have the money, so they don't eat it. So they lack that component of their nutrition or they buy the absolute lowest grade garbage. So they go buy yes. lettuce that was probably sprayed three days before you bought it with insecticide, you know, and they think they can wash it off or something, or they're living all on, you know, grain-based diets of, of high storable, mm -hmm. high commodity, cheap food. And they could be eating the highest quality food that's available anywhere. And they could be doing it from their own backyard. And no matter where they are, there's something they could be doing like that. Oh, definitely. You know, I come back to this a lot. It's like, well, how many hours do you spend mowing a week? Well, could you turn that into some edible ground? I mean, you're not a cow. You're not a sheep. You can't turn over that grass into something that you can use. So like maybe, maybe just maybe you turn some of that grass into something that you can eat. And so, you know, I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of room to literally grow things, um, but also grow your knowledge and just 
So what if it doesn't work the first time? Try it again. Um, you know, there's a, been a lot of times that's like, well, the first time that we grew lettuce, it didn't really work worth a crap because I didn't have enough soil in the depth that it needed. So like figure that out. So put it in a tray versus into little packs, you know, figure out what works for you and your climate. Um, but just keep trying. And just because something dies the first time doesn't mean that you're bound to kill everything. It just means yeah. that you haven't figured out how to raise that plant yet. And so just keep trying and keep working on it. So if somebody grows it near you, it grows near you. You just ain't yep. cracked the code yet. We got to stop. We actually have to start thinking like we teach kids to think. Like I remember the first time my son, want, he went on to play basketball. So he took him to a court, you know, and they didn't even have the lower rims they had. It was all 10 foot rims. And he was six or six or seven and short for six or seven. And the first couple of times he threw the ball, it didn't even touch, you know, like get to the height of the rim. Right. And he was so discouraged. I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think you were going to come out here and be Michael Jordan? Right. The day, day one, you obviously, but like you're going to have to work at this and develop yeah. the skill. And then so we teach children that and then we turn around and go, oh, it's too hard. Like we do the exact opposite of what our advice is. Like, so you tried to grow lettuce and it didn't work. A pack of lettuce seed is ninety nine cents. Shut up yeah. and plant some more lettuce. Right. And that fearless <laughs> nature is like everybody that successfully ends up producing a significant amount of food for themselves. We all went through that. I mean, I'd like to say I didn't because I grew up with a grandfather teaching me how to do all the, the gardening and do everything naturally and all. And it worked. And I really knew what I was doing in Pennsylvania. And then so we moved to Texas. And then I'm like, I know I'll plant a garden. <laughs> And literally everything died. My first garden was like, I think Tomatillos grew uh, and ate the rest of the garden. And like, yeah. every, like I got blight on the tomatoes. I put the seeds, certain seeds out too late in the season when it was already like surface temperatures, like 105 degrees. Like you just, even just a move in geography will set you back until you figure out how to adapt. So anybody that thinks like the reason that someone like me grows all the food that I grow now is I have like a special thumb and I touch it and it all grows. That's not how this works. No. You always have to adapt to your surroundings, your situation. And then you're like, I found this new food in the seed catalog. This looks awesome. When you grow it, it never looks like that atomic grape tomato on the front of the Baker Creek catalog the first time. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't no, it does not. like that guy airbrushed it before you put it on there <laughs> or whatever. Like you, it's going to take time, but it, it, to me, it's so worth it because that access to that food that's out there, it's food I don't want to pay for because it's expensive. And what I will pay a lot of money for, I can't get what I have. I'm growing a zucchini right. from Costa Rica right now. I, I don't know what store I would go to to get that. You know, it's, <laughs> it's insane. And the, and the vine borers don't kill it so far. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep trying. And, you know, just because that one variety of whatever didn't work out. Like you said, a pack of lettuce seed is 99 cents. Maybe you don't have the right kind of soil mix for your area. Maybe it dries out, has too much bark or peat moss in it, whatever. Try a different kind. And, you know, just just keep keep working at it. Just you don't have a black thumb. Yeah. You know, you aren't born into the black thumb era like you can have a green thumb if you just keep working at it. So, yeah. Yeah, I I think the other thing like is 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 it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So like I'm all about starting your own plants from seeds and all and some things are much better direct so than transplanted, but you know, starting seeds 2 months before your last frost date in a seed starting system that, where they won't die is a skill set. Making compost is a skill set. Growing vegetables is a skill set. You don't need to take on all these new school skill sets at once. If you have someone local to you, like like your program, and you can buy in your pepper and tomato plants your first year, 
and focus right. on how do I make good soil? How do I mulch? How do I take care of the plant through the season? That's all you need to do in year one. And I, what I see is mm-hmm. people, they want to go 100% full on, you know, glorious permaculture level production, not rely on anybody. That's a fine destination. Out yep. of the starting blocks, you're probably going to stumble right onto your face. Mm-hmm. And so pick, you know, a couple, three skill sets to, to learn in a year well is probably enough. Yep. Yep, definitely. Yeah, we we definitely dabbled in that at school where I was like, well, we could do this. We could do that. We could do this. Yeah. Well, then it's like, well, that led to me getting burnt out because I was trying to figure out how to do 18 things really, really fast. And well, I think that's anybody, you know, you try to learn too many things too quickly and and, um, you know, you just get burnt out on, oh, I didn't do anything right because you couldn't focus on the three things that you could have to make one thing work right, you know. Um, so, yeah, just taking it slow and that's what we we've learned too with like bees. Like we didn't add on bees until after we had mastered the monarch butterfly thing, you know? So just, you know, get one thing down pat before you move on to the next. And then it'll be like second nature to you. Just like, you know, the first time that you cook a hamburger, it might not go super smoothly, but then you can move on to, Oh, I moved it too quickly. I need to leave it on the grill a little bit longer. Then you'll figure, figure it out. Um, you know, as you go and through time and, yeah, just pace yourself. <laughs> and even though we just kind of pitched real hard about, you know, see things through until you learn how to do it well, also take the parts of it that you hate and don't do that anymore. I had bees. I learned everything about bees. I learned how to pull frames, identify queens, identify diseases, feed the bees, harvest the, yeah. the, the comb. And, all. and you know what I discovered after two years of doing it? I don't like taking care of bees. Yeah. Right. Valid. I just don't like it. Right. <laughs> you know what? There's a lot of people that do. Okay, you do the bees and I'll do the birds, right? Like that's yep. that's the approach. Yep. And there's there's no harm in picking and choosing because no one can do everything. And if you do, you, you gave what the recipe is. It's a recipe for burnout. Like mm-hmm. there's times I want to try a new thing and my wife's like, you don't need one more thing <laughs> to do, right? Like you don't need one more thing to take care of. And on some right. level, she's, she's right. Like I'll always do little experiments and stuff because I want the content to teach from and to teach mm-hmm. from a point of experience, but like with the bees, I got the experience. I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. I do it. I discovered I have no fear of a bee. If a bee wants to sting me, he can go ahead and sting me right now. You know what? Fifty thousand angry bees. I'm not really like fifty thousand angry no. bees. And where I live, what happened? My part of why I didn't like it. My hives continuously went hot. Crush yeah. a yep. queen, you know, and then we, next season you get a swarm, and immediately you had these bees that like. You knew when it happened because you would walk up to the hive and the resonance tone of the bees in the hive was a different sound. Yes. You're like, ah, oh, it happened again. Like, yep. And then yeah. you're putting queens in. So I just like I didn't want to do that much work. But mm-hmm. you know, God bless the people who do. So now I just have lots of bee habitat, you know, and yep. I don't yep. know where they are, but there's wild bees all over here because I don't have anybody really local doing bees. And mm-hmm. my ponds are just covered in. So they live there somewhere. They're the angry, mean bees who kept cross cross breeding with my bees but when they're individuals out by themselves they're not angry mean bees they're just happy right. so like that's right that's the solution. Like, like you don't have to do everything yep yep for sure and i think yeah just that's really good to instill in kids too um in the more that we can teach them that maybe there's like one skill that you're really really good at but maybe you're really not great at doing math this way but you can figure out how to build a garden bed out of that math problem but you can't 
you can't figure it out on paper, but you can physically see how to build that garden bed, mm-hmm. then, you know, that makes all the difference to the kids and, and what they're, what they're learning in school too. So, yeah. What are some of your upcoming goals and visions for like this next stage of your life? How do you see this playing out on, on like the, the bigger scale? Sure. Uh, good question. You know, <laughs> this is all like a, it depends scenario. Yeah. And I, and I feel like, so what we're going to try to do this summer um, so my contract at, with the school ends June 30th. And so after that, um, I'm working on right now trying to get classes planned for canning, um, freezing workshops, butchering workshops, because we have Muscovy ducks, too. And so um, we're going to plan on doing a butchering. We have like, I don't know, 10, 12 ducks sitting on, you know, 70 eggs, whatever. <laughs> so we'll yeah, have a lot to work do, with. <laughs> um yeah, and so we'll be doing that. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the bees at school, but, you know, if I do get the chance to do that um, and take on classes with that, um, being able to put people in suits, because we got suits with a grant, all different sizes, so I'd like to bring people into that realm. And, you know, like you said, there are people that are like, I really want to work with bees, and other people that um, think they want to work with bees, and then they get in there, and it's a huge investment to make and maybe just – opening the eyes to people that, oh, I like the thought of it, but I don't like actually doing it. So, um, but anyways, I'm starting to do some classes probably in July, August, and into September, and then kind of transitioning over, just keep writing more blog posts and getting stuff up on YouTube, kind of getting stuff shifted over to there and kind of seeing where that leads. And then, um, yeah, I don't really... I don't know much past there, but, you know, probably like a 10 year plan. Um, we, we have applied for some other grants too, um, um, just as a family basis and um, trying to do that. So we won't find out if we make it past the next round until September. And if we do, then there's like a whole nother sequence of presenting that. And um, but we're hopeful for that. And um, given the experience that we've had and kind of in our little pocket of the state of Iowa that, you know, there's, we feel like there's a need, but we want to back it up with these classes and make sure that people are actually interested in these things before we make a really long-term permanent commitment um, with a with an event center. So, but yeah, that's kind of I would hope in the next ten years or so. But gosh, I'm starting to feel a little bit old. I was sprinting with the kids on the relay day and the last day of school, and I was like, I don't think I'm made for I this anymore. anymore. <laughs> Keeping up with eight-year-olds is hard enough when they're not running. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely hear you, you know, and on like on these episodes, I always try to give people like ideas of what they can do. Like, so do you know what would make bees come back to nine mile farm? A bee man. Like we have a pool man. Like, that was my deal. My wife wanted a pool. I'm like, you always say only one more thing to do. <laughs> I have no problem paying for it, but you find yep. somebody and keep them gainfully employed and they come once a week and take care of the pool. If I had a bee man that came like once or twice a month and saw to everything and I paid them for mm-hmm. it, I'd have a yep. hundred, not a hundred hives. I'd probably have about 20 hives here. I just yep. don't want to do the work. I, it's it, yep. because it's another thing. And so yep. like in all of this stuff that we're talking about, if you're like, but that, like when we say like, I don't want to do that, you're like, but I want to do that. Cause I love that thing. Monetize that. Figure mm-hmm. out how you can go. I guarantee you right now, if I just contacted the people that I know local to me, when I say local, I mean five minute or less drive and said, hey, I got this new guy. I've got bees on my property now. He's charging 40 bucks a month to take care of your hives and you get, you know, 70 percent of the honey or whatever it would be. Yeah. There's, there's probably half a dozen that would say, give me his number now. 
Yep. But none of those people are ever going to keep a B. And like all yep. these things we're talking about, there's opportunities in. And as you develop this program you want to develop, I think it's a good idea to one, see the opportunities you have to harvest revenue, but also like to channel that into the stuff you're not going to do, empowering people to see that opportunity too, because you mentioned it being a low income area. And mm -hmm. the reality is the more localized an economy becomes, the less income people need because you start developing the value locally and money is only a representation of the value of the economy it circulates in. That is definitely part of chapter 14 of the permaculture manual, right? That money, that's why you can do a system like a let system, which we have better ways of doing that now, but where people create their own currency within a local economy. The only reason that works is because the value is actually coming from the production and service of goods and products in the economy. So the more we can localize these things, the more we can decentralize them, use a big scary Bitcoin anarcho word, right? The more decentralization we can build into these local economies, the less dependent people become on J-O-B style income. Mm -hmm. And if they do have J-O-B style income, the further it goes. Yep. Yep, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that I feel like we can that we can go with this. And I feel like I'm creative of enough of a person to make a go of it. And I'm just hopeful for what's down the road. And yeah, just, you know, it's been a really good time here at the school. And unfortunately, with the way that the things are in the in the state of the public education world and the things that are required and not required, yeah. then I feel like it's just time to use my gifts and move, move somewhere else and do something else. So not necessarily physically move, but because we have a pretty good homestead set up right now, but um, you know, just doing the things that I'm already doing and um, you know, moving over and up. So we, we've talked an awful lot through the center and toward the end of this about, the practical application, the growing of the food, the harvesting of the food, et cetera. But in the beginning, we talked a lot about your background, what your education's in. You know, you have a, a real heavy background in nutrition and, and diet. How do you see that rolling into this new initiative? Yeah, I feel like it's a really good fit. And just honestly, getting people to think more about where their food comes from, then they won't have to spend so much on medicines and treatments and everything else. Um, so I think personally, just for myself, like the food preparation side and getting people to think more holistically and not just, you don't just take a pill to get rid of this or that problem. Um, but, you know, meals from scratch, how do you do that? What are the best substitutes, if you want to call it that, or what's the best, you know, oil to use? Is it going to be butter for you? Was it going to be coconut oil, um, depending on, you know, what you have access to, um, you know, and I think that that's really going to be a key part in that. And then just, um, you know, continuing to show people that, you know, you can grow your own food and and do that. And, um, you know, don't just buy buy the completely boxed method of everything, but, you know, try and do things absolutely from from scratch and grow what you have and throw in what you can. And, um, you know, and consulting is always an option for, for dietetics realm of things. I'd have to get a special insurance license and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's always a thing that could be done if people want to learn how to lose 30 pounds, whatever, uh, in a healthy way, you know, that's always an option too. And that's something that I'd be open to as well. So, yeah, awesome. a lot of different options. Let's take a few questions from the audience, and if 
Sure. You know, don't be afraid to be a politician and bend the question a little bit if it's not directly applicable. Uh, Ronald says, uh, have you tried this in other programs like YMCA Boy and Girls Club, after school programs, et cetera? And that's what I mean. Like maybe you haven't tried it, but maybe you could angle that more toward like how people could tie into those. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, like our local extension program, so it's Iowa State University Extension and Outreach is what it's called. It's quite a mouthful. But um, so they do some things like pick a better snack where you can do like little taste testing things. But you could always go into um, I feel like where there's a daycare center or something like that and do simple taste tests with the produce maybe that you've grown on your balcony or on your farm, what have you, you know, and just getting people to try things like that's a huge first step in doing that. Or, you know, maybe you go in with the supplies that um, they would need to plant everything. You take care of it um, and then you bring it back and you say, okay, for your summer project, this is what you have. So I could see that fitting into a lot of different, you know, after school type programs or, um, you know, YMCA, uh, 4-H, FFA, you know, a lot of those things that could fit in well with. Mm hmm. We had a question that brought that in, so let's go there next about, you know, would any of this be covered under 4-H or FFA? I think yes, but there's some real differences there. F FFA is kind of its own thing. 4-H is kind of its own thing. Uh, maybe this is a little bit more holistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where I feel like this is different than, like, 4-H and FFA is that it was specifically something that we hit majority of kids in our community because a lot of them are – going to a public school. They're not, not a lot of kids around here are homeschooled or go to a private school. There just aren't the options uh, for that. You know, it's a lot of times like a one income family um, or, you know, grandma and grandpa are raising the kids, whatever. So um, they wanted to hit the kids where they were at most of them in this community. And so that's why they, they decided to tap into the sure. public school system that way. But um, I mean, you can always do, gardens and things like that as a 4-H project or FFA. Um, you could have it be a chapter project where you have a community garden and you grow those things and then you figure out what you're doing further down the road from that. But it's a, you know, totally different, um, yeah. I guess, way of looking at it. But similar there, there is a beauty in doing it through the school systems, right? So parents have to figure out how to get their kids to school and back home every day. Kids are there five days a week, nine months out of the year. So they're in that location. The, the, the converse is now we have to fight for funding and we have to work within the constraints and limitations of, of being in a bureaucracy. But they are all there. Whereas the challenge when you go in, like call it private sector, is, OK, now I have a different place my kids need to go or a different place that I need to go. And if you just think about the demographic you're talking about, single Income, families, single parent, families, grandparents raising grandchildren. You're talking about people who are freaking tired, right? It's just like, yeah. you know, my wife, you don't need one more thing to do. A lot of people have figured that out. That I don't need another thing to do. And they may want their kids involved in something like this. And if it's, oh, Susie can walk down three blocks and be there and her brother can go with her so no one bothers her, okay. But if I got to get in the car on, you know, yep. Friday after school and take like that is a challenge that needs to be worked out. And it would be mm -hmm. kind of a real impetus for people to start trying to go hyper local with programs like this. Like if you live in a neighborhood that has a lot of kids starting something in your own backyard in that neighborhood and, and meeting other parents and talking to them. And, you know, I run programs and I love the idea of creating 
uh, a deliverable of some kind that you kind of talked about, like you go into a nursery school and this is what we do for nursery school level students or right. and it doesn't really matter if it's what I think is best or you think is best. The thing is that it's repeatable and it's something can be a deliverable and then don't be afraid to charge something for it. Like you can't work right. for free. Like maybe you to establish yourself, you do things more in like a volunteer basis or whatever. But at some point you've got to start generating revenue or what you're doing by its definition becomes unsustainable unless you're independently wealthy. Right. Like because right. you, you got to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. And yeah. so I got to do something. And if I'm not doing this thing, then I'm doing something else. And now this is a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's always going to be a challenge. But I think there's a lot of a tremendous amount of opportunity. And, you know, don't hate money. Figure out how to make some money along the way. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of research that goes into saying, like, how much a green space can affect um uh, you know, kids that live in communities that are just surrounded by buildings or like um, have empty lots around them. Well, maybe you decide to go turn that lot into an edible food garden. And, um, you know, you get, like you said, the community, the kids that are already in that neighborhood, you get them to come down and you say every Tuesday at four o'clock, you know, we're doing this or, um, you know, you have a walking school bus type system where it's like you go and you set up something in the community and you say at this time I'm going to go pick up Susie and this time we're going to walk down the block and pick up Jack and then we're going to keep going around, you know, um, just so that way everybody's safe and accounted for and people feel like they're included as well. You know, that might be a good thing too. So Hunter had asked us if we had, you'd seen changes in the kids and we kind of addressed that. This was his follow up. And I think what he's basically saying is, did you notice any of the kids that maybe had a lot of allergies or health issues like their their overall life improved when they started eating higher quality food? Um, you know, we don't have a lot of allergies in our community. Um, yeah. Granted, we're pretty small, but, you know, uh, the kids that say they have an allergy, it's not really documented by science or by a doctor. Um, and so kids will say, oh, I'm allergic to shellfish. They're not. They just don't like fish. And so you have to be careful with that delineation of yeah. are you allergic or or do you just not like it? Um, yeah. And so that's different. But I would say, you know, eating differently, um, it hasn't pulled anybody out of being allergic to anything. Um, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. But people um, since we started doing our own honey in the, the community, people have noticed a difference just being able to not ha- be so sniffly or their eyes running so much, you know, just because the honey is made from the, the bees are literally in town. And so the people who buy it in town are really noticing a difference because they take it consistently every day. So we've noticed that a bit, but you know, again, that's just personal opinions on everything. It's not documented by science or what have you. So um, yeah. So. Gotcha. No, I, I, that's something that I've heard from a tremendous number of people that local honey has helped with their allergies. And it, it's pretty much a, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is like a, it's not an evidence base. It's more of a obs- observational mm-hmm. result, sure. but yeah. it's an observational result from an awful lot of people in an awful yeah. lot of different places with an awful mm-hmm. lot of different backgrounds. And when you see yeah. enough of something, there's probably something to it. K-Mock yeah. says, local honey works, and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you that one, K-Mock. Well, yeah. um, I really had a, a, a great time and a great conversation, Kelsey. Is there anything yeah, you want to leave us with? Um, I do have all the links because you're one of the good ones that when I say, give me all your links, you give me all your links. So I've got your blog, your social Thanks. media stuff, all of that yeah. in the show notes. If you're watching the video live, 
about 30 minutes to 45 minutes after this ends, there's a link down there where the audio side will be. You can get all of that there. But is there anything you want to kind of clue people in on? Yeah, well, I guess just follow along with the journey. And um, if you have questions or things that um, you're questioning about your community or how you can get involved, I mean, I'm an open book. I can always share resources with you that I've created in the past. Um, so just feel free to shoot me an email or a direct message on whatever. I also recently added Instagram since I applied there. So but it's still the same, the Iowa Family Gardening Homestead Instagram, too, to just document some things with pictures and um, gain some interest. But be looking for the blog and um, all the things that are to come with the summer. And, yeah, just I appreciate you so much for having us on. Well, I appreciate it. It was a great discussion. Once you get everything off and rolling and you've, you've got something else going on, you want to come back. Fill the guest form out again, and we'll have for you sure. on. And for anybody listening, how do I get on the show? Fill out the guest form. <laughs> don't don't send me a seventy-five page email. I'll delete yeah. it. Right? The, the way <laughs> I know I will. I'm like, I know you're busy, but and there's like seventeen paragraphs. Delete. I, I, I'm sorry. I you just yeah. That's not good. Um, the way to the show is through Dorothy. Dorothy. The way to Dorothy is through the form, and that's how you get on. You did it, and look, here you are. It works. Here, so, yeah. It I think we're about to take the guest form down, folks, because we're booked out into almost August. So if you want to get on this summer, get it filled out because it'll probably be Friday. I'll take it down. I'm really busy the rest of the week. Hey, Kelsey, this was great. I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. All right, fantastic interview. I, I encourage you, if this is something that interests you, to figure out how to do it or something like it in your own local community. I, I really believe that there's just a tremendous opportunity in the type of things that we're talking about today. It's it's the kind of thing that everybody, I hate the word everybody in promotional things, that many people want to be part of, but they really just don't know how. And people are good at following packages and programs and step-by-step -step things. And, and people will, will gladly pay for things to be packaged into a way that makes sense to them. And that's where the opportunity lies here. Whether you do it through a public system like the public education system or through some other form of, of governmental organization or under some larger umbrella or you do it completely on your own, that is the key is putting things into packageable, manageable bites of information and giving people like they don't know anything, then what you do first, and then you do this, and then you do that, and getting people excited and uh, building out a program that way is something you know we talked about in the beginning of this uh, show when I did my intro about John Build's Exit and Build Accelerator program, and there's probably a natural fit there. Trust me, there's money in food. I don't think, you know, we, we've created this image that all the farmers are poor or something like that. Look at the size of the grocery industry in this country. There is, when there's that much money involved, there is opportunity for the person that does it right, whether you do it as a volunteer or whether you do it as a going concern to try to make a living. Anyway, with that, let me remind you real quick, if you want to help this show out, and uh, support the work that we do so that we'll always be here. There's a couple ways you can do that. Two of the most powerful are, number one, become a member. If you've never become a member, think about becoming a member today. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on Members, check out all the great discounts you get. It won't cost you a dime in the end. It's a $50 annual membership, and I don't know anybody that's ever tried to use the discounts and not gotten more than 50 back, 50 back in a year. 
It just it doesn't happen. I built it that way on purpose. Uh, so check that out. Also remember, you can help us out just by starting your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Anchor Soundcore Waterproof Boot waterproof bluetooth speaker these are a great little speaker you can pair them means if you get two you can have basically stereo sound like everything from anchor they just work i have sold literally thousands of these over the years and no complaints this is what i know about anchor when anybody does have an issue with an anchor product and they contact anchor anchor just makes it right if you sell that much in the electronic space sooner or later you're going to have a, a lemon or you know, a, a postman is going to do something stupid with it or something like that but they've never not taken care of anything and they're fantastic uh, company they're my favorite value electronics brand and i really love their audio stuff it is up there in quality with things that cost a hell of a lot more and the reason i brought this speaker around today because it's on sale for 25 percent off you can find it at tspaz.com and again even if you don't buy something i recommend there you support us anytime you start your shopping there that's all you really have to do that's a pretty easy thing to do to support the podcast that you love listening to last real quick reminder before i sign off to Day. Tickets for the 15-year anniversary party go on sale tomorrow at 8 a.m. I don't think it will sell out in a half an hour or something like that, but you just never know with stuff like this. It's going to be at an awesome venue. Tickets are 80 bucks ahead. There's no limit. If you want to like come as a couple, you can buy two tickets. It's, it's not a problem I have where you can select quantity when you pay. Uh, I did hear from one person, that's kind of high in price. It's exactly what I'm paying per head. I'm making no money on it. I wanted to do this as a really fantastic time. Good food, lots of activities, great environment. You know, I got a price per head, and I marked it up 0%. And so it's only so that we can give you the experience you're looking for. I promise you it'll be 80 bucks well spent. Compare that to a lot of other things you do when you drop that kind of money. And I think, you know, it's going to be on a Thursday. The show, the show, the, the party itself is going to be on Thursday. It's going to be in Fort Worth. Uh, so you do have to get here if you're not local. I understand that. But if you do that, like I said, just take your Friday off. Think about a five, a four day weekend, right? Beginning with a party with some of the coolest people in the world because they're all from the TSP community. You can be part of it. Uh, you can learn more at the survivalpodcast.com. Start scrolling down. You'll find it. And the uh, the post will go out tomorrow morning, 8. I'll put it out on all the social media when I do it. I'll put it on the Telegram list and the Telegram channel when I do it. Uh, 8 a.m., set a reminder if you want to make sure you get a ticket. Again, I don't think it'll sell out super fast, but you just don't know. We are limiting it to 75 due to the size of the venue uh, space that we have available. With that, Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Tomorrow I got a special episode for you. Because we are putting the tickets on sale for 15 years of the Survival Podcast, I'm doing an episode tomorrow that I think a lot of you will really enjoy. It's what I've learned from 15 years being behind the microphone. And I generated the outline and the general questions that I'm going to be doing using AI. And it was surprisingly good at developing uh, questions for me to answer and, and talking points for me for this subject. And so I think it'll be a, a kind of a review, a trip back through time to the genesis of this podcast and the things I've learned along the way, including the mistakes that were made as well. With that, I'll catch you with that tomorrow. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? 